And that verse goes with our sermon so well. The Holy Spirit is at work in our children. Amen. Well, it's good to see everybody in the house of the Lord this morning. And we are back in the book of Revelation. uh, After losing an hour of sleep from springing forward. It's good to see everybody here. So Jesus, in in these chapters that we're looking at, this is the easy part of the easier part of Revelation. And he simply is addressing seven churches. The seven churches of Asia Minor. These are real churches, real locations. And we have noticed that he speaks to their cultural situations and sometimes their geopolitical situations in how he addresses the church and and where they have been planted. We've also noticed that there's a formula if you will, to the way he addresses these churches. He introduces himself. He pulls descriptions from the way he described himself in chapter 1. And he doesn't, he doesn't pull these descriptions randomly. He is really strategic in how he addresses the churches. And a lot of times the way he introduces himself as, as God applied directly to the situation that the church might be struggling with. This morning we're going to look at the church of Thyatira. The church of Thyatira. So he addresses each church according to what they're struggling with. And that is uh, helpful to us. If if you are struggling with um, feeling lonely, it's good to be reminded of God is love. If you're struggling, you're feeling weak in your Christian faith, it's good to be reminded that God is strong and mighty. Um, If you're struggling with the guilt of sin, it's good to be reminded that God is a forgiving God. If we think we're getting away with things, it's good to be reminded that God has piercing eyes, that he knows the hearts and minds. And so he introduces himself in very appropriate ways. And then after he does that, he often uh, mentions the good or the bad. I mean, the good first and then the bad. He'll give a compliment. And then if there's a rebuke that's necessary, He will offer that as well. He basically does what I was taught not to do. And that is, I can't remember where, I I probably read it in some Christian book or something. Maybe a parenting book. But what you don't want to do is you don't want to compliment somebody and then say, but you're really messing up in this area. Um, You know, sometimes we're guilty as parents to do that. And we sit our kids down, and, and our, our real motive is to encourage them, but also uh, train them, discipline them. And so we, we mention the good things they do, but then we, we follow it with, but you're failing in this area. And usually, as humans, we seldom walk away encouraged. We usually walk away feeling defeated because, well, why would you even compliment me if all you're going to do is kind of give me a sucker punch there? But this is Jesus, and he gets away with it. You know, he just, he says, you're doing great in this area. This is outstanding. I'm very pleased. But, and, in, and isn't it interesting that we're learning in uh, Jesus' address to the churches that having a good bat, batting average isn't good enough for Christ. You know, I'm pretty amazed at what, how Jesus addresses these churches because some of these churches are outstanding and their accomplishments and how they're following the Lord. I mean, enduring persecution, they're tough. 
And yet, if there's something in there, if there's, if there's an error in that church, the Lord will call it out because the church represents Christ on the earth. And He does not want to be misrepresented. So He calls things out. And as we see areas in our lives uh, that Christ calls out in these churches, we want to take our medicine. We want to agree with Christ. I'm guilty in this area. And there's always a way out. In every address of a church that Jesus gives, not only does he give a rebuke, but he gives a command to repent. And then he gives a promise for those that conquer the particular sin that these churches are struggling with. So there's always a way out, and that is repentance. So, if you're cold, you're you're doing the right things, but you're cold... You don't delight in the Lord anymore like the church of Ephesus. Turn around. Endeavor yourself. Do what it takes to love the Lord. Uh, personally, I, I am get, I'm convicted over each address to the churches as I study them. Because we have strengths as a church. We also have weaknesses. I have personal strengths. I also have weaknesses. And when I read about you've lost your first love, I was like, God, I see myself in that. I'm not as passionate as I used to be. And what can I do practically? I don't want to keep going in the wrong direction. What can I do practically? I don't know if you face the same thing or not. But one of the ways that I apply that to my life was before I get out of the bed every morning now, I start talking to God. uh, I start praising Him, adoring Him, uh, singing love songs to Him so that I'm gearing my mind to... I'm purposing and choosing to be in a loving relationship with God as a result of Ephesus. Or if we've been rebuked like the church of Pergamum in not being very biblically discerning and letting false teaching into our minds or into our homes through different books, we need to repent of that. And the way we do that is to be more discerning and to read our Bibles and then to read them again and read them again so that we have a proper understanding. But there's always a way out, and that is... Repentance. If our hearts need to be changed, there is newness of life and newness of relationship <clears throat> to be had. As I think about the emphasis that Jesus puts on repentance, it reminds me of my own personal testimony that I want to share with you. And it's kind of contrarian in so much as how we understand how the gospel goes forth and the conversion process. Um, Everybody's story is different. And God doesn't always work the same way in people. But this is simply my personal experience, so you just take it as that. I'm not trying to build a doctrine, though I could build a doctrine with this. But when I first heard the gospel, you know, my first reaction was, yeah, right. I didn't believe it. It it didn't fit into the narrative of how I had decided, my worldview of how I had decided life works and who I am. I disregarded it. But the seeds of truth were planted in my heart. And I had to deal with it. And I started, in my mind, I started thinking about what was shared with me repetitively because it was my brother-in-law, Bob Hill, who kept sharing the Christ with me and sharing Christ with me. So I couldn't escape it because we lived together. And worked together. But I began to see that what he said 
And what Scripture said was true about me, and that was I, I'm an out-of-control sinner. I'm an out-of-control sinner. That truth was just driven down into my heart. The Bible's right. I can't just turn sin on and off. I do it even when I don't want to do. So I began to see, to see that what God said about my nature was true, and then you can't really escape the truth when you see it like that. And so I tried to fight it. I tried to explain it away uh, and argue with it. But when truth becomes your personal experience, they're just you, you can't escape it. And so basically what I saw was that the narrative that God gives us in His Word, the Bible, was more accurate than the narrative that I had created in my mind in my life. I thought life operated this way, and if I did this and this, I would be rewarded, and life would be wonderful, and Scripture's telling me the opposite. The Scripture was telling me, actually, no, you're not right with God, and He created everything, and He created you, and so the farther you go down that path that the world is telling you to go down, the more miserable you're going to be, and I'm like, this is exactly what's happening in my life. And so the truth just kept pounding upon me. And I'm, I'm 19 years old at this time. And so, you know, I realized that, man, everything that Bob said was true. I need salvation. And so uh, after becoming increasingly and increasingly convicted about my sin, I feared hell because I thought to myself if this narrative is true and God is true and I need salvation the other things he says in the Bible are true there is a heaven and a hell which I I believed in already but I just kind of didn't think I'd ever wind up there that was my narrative that was my conclusion that's for really bad people I mean I'm bad but I'm not really bad then I started to get the fear of God in me like yeah there is a hell and it's for sinners and I'm busted. I cannot wiggle out of this. So one night in desperation, I cried out to God in the best way I knew. I didn't know the Bible very well. And my, my plea for salvation was, God, if everything Bob said was true, please save me. I need salvation. Now what happens when you pray that prayer? You get saved according to our understanding of how the gospel works. I didn't get saved. When I cried that prayer. I didn't get saved. I didn't get saved. Not on the basis of. uh, Believing in faith. That because I said the right words. When you say the right words. Then God does his thing. I wasn't trusting in the words I said. I knew that I wasn't saved. Strictly based on experience. Strictly based on feelings. Because my feelings, my life was miserable. I was sick to the core. And I felt it and I couldn't get out from under it. And I knew that if I was guilty, then when I got saved, that feeling would go away. That experience, the life just closing on me. And it didn't that first night. And so what it made me do is the next night, and it, I was too distracted in the day with work and, and so forth. But when I got home at night and I was by myself, it came back to me. And so the next night I... I prayed the same prayer. God, I need salvation. And nothing happened. So in my mind, I'm starting to think, okay, this is not good. Not even God wants me. 
I have done so much bad that apparently God doesn't think there's enough time left in my life to make up for the bad by doing good. Now that's wrong thinking. Because now I'm looking at this through hindsight. I didn't know this at the time. It's clear to me now. But I wanted to be worth something to God. I wanted to think that, okay, I need salvation, but I'm worth it. Because I have this and this to offer you. And so this went on, I don't know how many days. It, it was, I think it was about ten nights I cried out to God. And each night I got more and more desperate. And it got to the point where I had to realize that I had nothing to offer God. That I was in, in absolute need of His mercy alone. I didn't bring anything to the table. Gifts, talents, whatever I thought I had. So, one of those nights, more desperate than I was each night increasingly, I prayed, God, I don't want to go to hell. Please save me. And that night, God saved me. How do I know? Personal experience. That was, this is my story. Because the filth and the rot and the conviction and the guilt lifted off me. Just like a thousand pounds. And I knew I was forgiven. It was, again, it was an experience and a feeling. And some people might say, well, yeah, well, you're not supposed to trust in feelings. You were saved the first night when you said the right words. Okay, what good is it for me to go around in the, in the world being saved but not even knowing it or feeling it? That was counterintuitive to me. So what I think in hindsight, and I am so grateful that God did not save me that first night because He did me a solid. He did me a favor. He allowed me to see the depth of my sin and not go in like 90% guilty, but 10%. I got something here that you need in me. I went in destitute. And man, that filth was lifted off of me. And I am so grateful, though it's, it's, it was terrifying, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody else to live those 10 days of my life that I did. I am so grateful that God did not answer my prayer on nights 1 through 9, but only on 10 when I realized how much I needed Christ. That was true repentance. In Hebrews 10.22, I believe, he says, draw near to God with a sincere heart. That means an authentic heart, a true heart. When we repent... We embrace the truth in its wholeness. And we say, God, you are absolutely right. And I have no excuse and I'm absolutely wrong. Please forgive me. And so repentance is important. Not only did my words say the right thing, but now my heart completely lined up with what I was saying and crying out for And I was so desperate for God that when He came into my life, 
I was so relieved that I would follow that God anywhere for what He did for me. And I'm still following Him for what He did for me. I'm reminded of Psalm 32, 3-5, when I think about the sickness that sin brings into our lives. And this is the Amplified Bible. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand of displeasure was heavy upon me. My energy, vitality, strength was drained away as with the burning heat of summer. That was me. But God relieved me of those burdens. And I am so grateful for the mercy of God because all that guilt was filled with delight and joy. I felt like my feet weren't even touching the ground the next morning when I woke up. It was a dramatic conversion. So I I share that with us because for seven churches, seven addresses, except for Smyrna, the church that didn't get any rebuke, uh, and Philadelphia is debatable, but we'll get there. But anyway, seven churches, there is the, the command, look, I have this against you, repent. And we want to repent with a seer heart, sincere heart. We want to be true and authentic before God and tell Him words that match with what we see life as and how we see Him. Repent. We need to know how to repent. So let's read our text. We are in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your later works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and searching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So you see how Jesus introduces himself as the Son of God. He has eyes like flaming fire. He has eyes that penetrate. 
In another description he ha- that we'll read soon, he has a face that's very radiant. But here his eyes, they're like, they're like penetrating rays, if you will. He can see through anything. He knows every thought. In our hearts, our minds, our whole being, there is not a shadow or a splinter of anything that we can hide from God that he does not know about. There is absolutely no escaping his gaze. Verse 23, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. So his eyes are a penetrating laser. Not even lead will stop the x-ray vision of God. Now, who can see through everything except for lead? That's right. Not in the Bible, but it's okay. Superman. X-ray vision. But you put lead up, can't make it through there, but Jesus can see through lead. By the way, just for gee whiz, because I got curious one day, and I noticed that when you get an X-ray, they, when you got an X-ray years ago, they would put these huge, heavy lead suit on you almost, depending on what part was getting X-rayed, so the X-ray radiation didn't go through it. But they have perfected X-ray machines to the point where they only use 10% of the radiation that they used to. So you may notice that they, the, the little bit of lead they use, it's much lighter and it's not as cumbersome and so forth. And that's why they do that. But Superman or no Superman, uh, we have Jesus. Superman wishes he could be as powerful as Jesus. And his feet are burnished bronze. And whenever we hear about the burnishing and the purifying process of metals, and we obviously know that that has to do with symbolizing purity because the dross comes to the top of metals. And God wants, a, again, a pure heart, an authentic heart. But in this case, it's not just the purity symbol. It's also the burnished bronze has to do with power, has to do with weaponry, it has to do with judgment, it has to to do with breaking through things, overpowering things. And the early church would understand this because of the vision given to Daniel in chapter 10, verse 6, where we read his body was like beryl, like a translucent emerald, um, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, and his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude sounds like revelation, doesn't it? It's the burnished bronze, the idea of judgment. You, just, you can just blow through anything. You, you overpower, you plow through your enemies. Referring to the fact that there is absolutely no match to Jesus, the Son of God. And all will be judged accordingly. I have mentioned that Jesus often speaks to the church according to their cultural setting, their geopolitical setting, of the thing that they're known for, they have going for them. And interestingly enough, Thyatira was, was renowned for their burnished bronze. They, they had workers, they had expert, they had a guild there, and they produced a renowned burnished bronze that nobody else could produce. And the word here in the New Testament uh, that they use for burnished bronze is found only here. And so many scholars think that that's not just a word describing burnished bronze. That's, that's like a word describing Thyatira burnished bronze as if there was a guild there, maybe a secret guild that the workers didn't share with other people. 
to let them in on how they make such wonderful bronze. So there's, there's an application there to Thyatira there. They don't want to let the secret out. So I want us to see three things in this passage. The compliment that Jesus gives, uh, the rebuke, and then close with the promise. The compliment, it's outstanding. I know your works. And by the way, when I read this, just, just understand that the, the, your labors for the Lord, God knows everything you do. All your service that other people may not see. He is absolutely aware of every decision you make for His kingdom. I know your works. I know your love. I know your faith, your service, and patient endurance that your latter works exceed the first. They're growing. They are spiritually growing. This is exactly opposite of the struggle that Ephesus had. Ephesus had the works, but they didn't have the love. They, uh, Thyatira has the zeal. They have the delight in the Lord. They love serving Him. They're not wishy-washy. They're not just in it for the feels. They, they persevere. They have a patience about their faith. They know that you don't get everything you want every day and God doesn't answer your prayers just like you want Him to every day. Things take time. Things unfold in the kingdom of God. So they're in it for the long run. I mean, this is a great group of people. I would love to have this group in this church. People like that in this church. They've got a lot going for them. A loving people make a loving church. But that's where the compliment ends. Because Jesus follows with a rebuke. Again, reminded that you know just being close isn't good enough for the Lord. Keep going. Keep going. Keep purifying yourself. Keep sanctifying yourself. So he follows with this rebuke. God wants it all. And he deserves it all. And here's what he has against them. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. She calls herself a prophet. She's teaching. She's seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. Eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She refuses. And I will throw her on a sickbed. Anybody that has anything to do with her, all her disciples, all her children, I'll throw them on a sickbed. I will judge them because I am the Lord who searches the hearts and the minds of the churches. So many churches are facing tribulation uh, because of doing the right thing. This church is about to face tribulation for doing the wrong thing and not from enemies but from God himself. So they're tolerating this woman Jezebel. We've got to figure out who is this person Jezebel. We've got to go to the Old Testament to understand that. If you have read your Bibles before, you will know about Jezebel because she's a pretty prominent figure. So it makes for a good story in 1 Kings chapter 16. She was King Ahab's wife. During this era in the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites had really rebelled against God. The twelve tribes were split. The nation of Israel was split. split. You had the northern tribes and the southern tribes, which meant now you have two kings. And King Ahab was ruling in the north at this time, and King Asa was ruling in, down the south in Judah with those tribes there. This is, this is rough times for Israel. 
So um, Ahab was not at all a good king. I'm just going to read a little bit here to give you an idea. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That's a lot of evil. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. So she's a daughter of a king. And went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's a dangerous reputation to have. But that is this king that we're talking about. And this is who he married. The daughter of a king, Jezebel. He was terribly wicked. He was terribly immoral. And even his personality was unlikable because not only was he wicked and scheming, but as a king, he was a wimp. He was a crybaby. He was like a spoiled three-year-old. I don't, he, I don't think I would have liked him very much if I was in his kingdom. King, Queen Jezebel was the one with the guts in the marriage. She was the one that would get things done. She didn't sit around crying and sucking her thumb. If she saw how to rectify a situation to get what you want, doesn't matter if it's moral or not, she's the one that will go after it. She was ruthless. She was cold. She was aggressive. And Ahab would run to her with his little issues about things aren't going my way. And she would turn the tide, and uh, she was like the power figure in his life. Uh, she was a very feared individual in this day. You did not want to cross her. As a matter of fact, even the great prophet Elijah feared Jezebel. In 1 Kings 19, 2-3, uh, two Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, and this is after he killed all the uh, priests of Baal, you know, if you serve God, you live, if you don't, you die, and he takes out his sword. Um, so may the gods, Jezebel says to him, may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of the one of them by this time tomorrow that you, that you slew with a sword. And then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and he ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So this is a gutsy woman. She doesn't fear anything, not even Elijah. She's got to put a hit out on his life. Even after all that he did. A man of God. She did not fear the God of Israel at all. She's the epitome of evil and recklessness. And she was determined to bring pagan worship into the covenant people of God. To lead them astray. Now I just want to read one more passage just to give you an idea of how this dynamic worked in the, in the royalty of uh, the northern tribes at this time. So Ahab, you, you probably know this story, but Ahab wanted a vineyard, his neighbor's vineyard, Naboth's. He looked out his palace one day, he sees it, it's impressive, he's the king, he wants it. And uh, so he offers Naboth a lot of money for it. And Naboth's like, uh, no. 
This has been in my family a long time. Uh, I'm keeping it. And so, Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned his face and would eat no food. He's having a, a hissy fit. He's doing what our kids do. He, he's doing what I did when I was a kid. Manipulate. Okay, if I don't get my way, then I'm going to make everybody miserable around me. I mean, he just is, is pouting. So, Jezebel comes in, what's wrong? And Naboth won't give me his vineyard and I'm really bummed and wah, wah, wah. So she sends word to the elders in that area. and said, bring a false accusation against him. Bring him out in the public and stone him. And the worthless men, 1 Kings 21.13, the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. And guess what they used to stone him to death? It says it right here, with stones. They stoned him to death with stones. We need to know that. So you, you see this dynamic. And then she's like, uh, look, get off the couch. Get out of the bed. Get your thumb out of your mouth. The, the vineyard's yours, for crying out loud. So it's that kind of relationship. So Jezebel, this, this mysterious person, is in this church. A person like that. It's not a literal person. It's a person like that. That symbolizes the epitome of compromise, syncretism, worshiping false gods, idolatry, pulling people away from God instead of encouraging people to God. She was warned. We don't know exactly how that happened. Jesus says, I, I warned her. Gave her time to repent. And she didn't. I guess maybe he sent a prophet. Uh, maybe some of the, the faithful in the church confronted her. Maybe, maybe it was a prophetic word. I'm not sure. But she was given fair notice and did not repent. So the big question here for, for many people is, well, how, how much of this is symbolic? Now we know, obviously, it's not Jezebel herself resurrected. Uh, and the person's name was not Jezebel, but she is identified as a prophetess. So she has a, the same demeanor, the same uh, wickedness as Jezebel to some level. But some scholars say because Revelation is so symbolic, and we, we're going to learn that all the way through this book, that you have to be careful at taking things face value. In fact, Revelation alludes to the Old Testament more than any other book in the Bible. There are more allusions, but it does not cite the Old Testament. It doesn't cite it word for word. And that's because of the way it's written. It's symbolic. You have to kind of uh, think, okay, what's the big picture that Jesus wants to get us here? We can't take this literally. So what is Jesus having us to understand we have to kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together in that. That's how apocalyptic and symbolic writing works. So there's a question here as well. Was this real um, sexual immorality or is this symbolic of spiritual adultery? Because, well, 
by the time this letter was written and this church existed, you know in the Old Testament there were fertility cults. And you could go to one if you lived in that day. And you could sleep with a priest or priestess before the false god of this temple. And you're hoping in your copulation that these gods will make you fertile and your land's fertile. That's how they worked. That's how they rolled back then. That was a real thing. The Israelites did get caught up in that, but there were no, that was not near as common in this day. A lot of that had been um, just given up and in practice laid to the side. We also know in the Old Testament that Jesus would use literal adultery and whoredom to symbolize or to speak to his, to speak to his people. Okay, so to speak to his people about their uh, idolatry and their whoredom spiritually. So they were not literally sleeping around with other people. What they were doing was worshiping other gods. They were giving their hearts. They were loving other gods, false gods. And you have the whole um, story of the prophet Hosea. And God uses that. That's a real life situation where his wife cheated on him and she became a harlot. She just gave herself to other men. And there was a sense in which um, God says, look, you, you can imagine how Hosea feels, right? You can imagine how this husband feels about this whole situation. It's, it's, he's bummed. He's distraught. Well, now you know, and in essence, now you know how I feel about the way you're just going around and giving yourself to this God and giving yourself to that God. So there's a question there whether or not it's, it's actual sexual immorality um, or it's spiritual immorality and idolatry. Um, and I really don't know for sure. I don't think that that's that important, but I just did want to point that out, that it, it may have well have been just a spiritual idolatry, which is just as bad. <laughs> You're talking about mess, sleeping around on God, you know? That is cheating on God, that relationship there. <clears throat> but... What we do know is a lot of times we find we can put our finger on the issue. Jesus will rebuke, but then in the correction often is what we find what the real issue was. So in the correction, he says in verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned these things. So the main issue is the false teaching that leads people astray. That does not hold God as love the Lord your God alone. Have no other gods before me. So the main issue is a teaching issue and some are not following it. Others are. And it's leading them astray. It doesn't say to the rest of you who, who are not sleeping around with other people. It says to the rest of you who are not holding to this teaching. So... The, the, the prophetess could be offering some kind of deeper knowledge. Uh, I have ways that will enable you to really please God. I have some secret truths. And if your desire is to worship him, I have some things that will enable you to worship him better. It's taking advantage of people who want to do right. That's what false teaching does. Usually it's those of us, I want to love God. Oh, that's how I do it? This is better than that? Okay, because I just want to love God. And that's how a lot of us get hooked with false teaching. It's cloaked. 
It's deceptive because Satan is a master deceiver. He, he doesn't want to be obvious. He doesn't want to be able to be picked out of a crowd with the horns and the red suit. He wants to fit in with everything so he can lure you away from God. So there's some lack of discernment here going on. There are people that don't know God's word enough to smell a fish. Like, uh, that sounds good and I kind of want to do it, but based on what I know here, uh, something is off with that. So no, I don't, I don't think I'm going to follow that. And it's very, very tricky. And there are, there are in, in our age, there are shades of false teaching. There are things that just are like, wow, man, that sounds good. I don't know what to do with that. Now, there was something that kind of went around to, to call something out that I had to struggle with personally and face, face personally. There, um, you know, false teachings kind of almost go in waves through the church. Like they come through and then they're gone. And then they show up again 15, 20, 30 years later. And uh, so years ago, I was confronted with... Uh, what I consider the false teaching, what actually has the name of the Hebrew Roots Movement. The Hebrew Roots Movement. Now, there are some very light false teaching in this that is a little bit innocent, but if you take it all the way to its extreme, it's absolutely dangerous false teaching. And just in essence, it's the belief that Jesus did not fulfill the Old Covenant of Moses, but he, he expanded on it so that... It's changed a little bit, but we are still under the old covenant, and we are still to worship God in the way that he commands in the old covenant with the feasts and so forth, not the sacrifices, because Jesus did away with that. And it's very tricky, but it's, it's presented as a superior way to worship because they would, uh, the, the strong ardents of this would say that you can't rely on the teaching that you have received from the church. All of what the church has discovered, all that you're being taught is false because it has been infiltrated with pagan thinking and Greek thinking. And we have to stick strictly with a Hebraic mindset to understand the scriptures. And so you basically have to throw away or throw out the understanding that you have of the New Testament and how salvation works and so forth if you take it all the way over to here. It's very deceptive. But um, I remember being perplexed. I was hearing different things and hearing Scripture being interpreted in, in different ways, and I was like, what, what is going on here? How could, I don't, where's this coming from? And I called an, a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary that is renowned, and I got him on the phone uh, by God's grace, and I told, des- was describing some things I was running into, and he said, that's the Hebrew Roots Movement. And then he said, um, the bottom line of, at the, at underneath of this is pride and arrogance because it, is, it offers a superior way. I'm going to offer you, because you love God so much, a superior way to worship than all these other churches. You're going to be closer to him if you follow these teachings. It's very, very alluring. And sometimes we might just smell a fish. A lot of times I can't point it out. I don't know exactly what's wrong. But based on biblical knowledge, Bible study, applying ourselves, putting ourselves under solid teaching, preaching, and so forth, books, 
men and women of God who understand and grapple with these things, we hone our skills. We know God a little better. And we can smell a fish and say, I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm not getting near it and I'm not eating a piece of it. We have to be discerning. This church was not discerning. They were misled. We've got to be careful with our emotions and our zeal. There has to be truth. And if I'm going to be honest about it, we have to watch out for the opposite error as a church. And that is, we are the only church that has the truth and everybody else is wrong. I have seen some people on YouTube, they catch my interest because they'll, they'll throw a name out there like Sproul or MacArthur or whatever, and they'll say, uh, her- her- uh, MacArthur preaches heresy. I'm like, okay. Or Sproul preaches heresy. Okay. So I listen to it, and it is like their interpretation of something, and they're calling all these pastors out, all these men of God out, as heretics based on one little thing and there's nobody else to call out anymore. So in other words, I'm the only one that knows the truth. Everybody else is wrong, and I'm right. And that's the opposite extreme, and we've got to watch out for that as well. Simply put, the less we know about our Bibles, the more vulnerable we are. You know, we think we have an option because we, we might have ten Bibles in our house, and we got all these v- teaching videos, and we look so spiritual because I can show you my bookshelf, but how much have I read it? How much have I listened to it? How much have I learned it? And if I don't, I am vulnerable to others, and I am vulnerable to the enemy who wants to trip me up and who wants me make, make me miserable instead of joyful and delighted in the Lord. As Noah reminded us, we were created for him. We find the most pleasure, the most pleasure we can get out of this broken, fallen world is in Christ Jesus. When the Spirit of God comes in us, he gives us new eyes and a new heart. So we look at the compliment, we look at the rebuke, and then we also see the promise. So what does God promise to those who conquer, who don't fall prey, or who repent of this? And that's what conquering means. Yep, I see it. I repent. I'm not following that sin anymore. He says, only hold fast, verse 23. What you have until I come, the one who conquers and, the, and who keeps my works until the end, to him I shall give authority over the nations. You picture yourself like that? And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. So... For those who overcome, they will rule with Christ. You know, this promise was given in Psalm 2, through, um, Psalm 2, 7 through 9. I'll tell you the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's a messianic psalm. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God the Father promised God the Son, the nations. They will all be yours. And that's why we read in the book of Revelation that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be represented in heaven as gifts of God. And for those that overcome, we have a place in ruling and reigning with Christ in the afterlife. We, have, we will be, of course, perfected and given authority. Now, 
I'm running out of time, but in Genesis, you know what we were supposed to do. The cultural mandate that we were given was to basically to rule and to reign, to be responsible, to, to work it, to keep it, and to multiply. We were supposed to correctly rule and have authority. He gave us authority over the things of the earth, only man. And we blew it. That is reinstated in a magnified way in the life to come. I remember as a new Christian, uh, still a little rough around the edges. I know I just told you how I was so delighted in the Lord when I got saved and all that's true. But I wasn't sanctified in one night. And uh, I struggled with some things. But one of the things I struggled with is... The idea of, um, in, you know, I'm 19, and you got to be tough, right? In the world, you got to be tough, and you got to present yourself as tough. And I worked at this concrete plant, and I'm thinking, man, I'm a Christian. I can't fight people. I can't push people and do the whole pecking order thing anymore. I'm going to be overtaken. And the Lord gave me this verse in 1 John 4.4 4, to enable me to hold my tongue and to, and to not, and to turn the other cheek, I guess you'd say, unless... It really called for uh, dire circumstances. But little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Man, the Lord burned that scripture in my mind and heart. And it, it was like water in a duck's back. It, it didn't bother me anymore because there's a greatness that you have when you are in Christ. It's a greatness that the world doesn't always recognize. But there's a greatness in you that is greater than anything in this world that has to offer because you have given your life to Christ. And he is the morning star, of course, the the presence of God, the light of God. It's the first thing that you see. And and it, it offers you the light you need to do life the right way. So the light of God and the presence of God. God is an awesome God. And what a gift we have in this mysterious book of Revelation. Just to be able to look a little bit at this church and a little bit and to admire this, this achievement and yet to repent and to recognize and identify with the good and the bad. And I pray that we will be a church that knows how to repent but also knows how to delight in the gift of grace that we have been given through Jesus Christ. May God bless the preaching of his word.